950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And we are joined by Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, as we are going to be uh, taking a look at some of the latest stories that they have been working on as we now head into the fall season here in September. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com, by the way, for the latest in Minnesota news and politics, as they do a great job over there covering uh, all of the Minnesota news. Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. So let's start off in the political realm where the DFL's House majority is going to be reduced from the current 70 to 64 to 69-64. And that's because Representative Ruth Richardson from the Mendota Heights area is going to resign her seat. She, besides serving in the legislature, is also the CEO of Planned Parenthood North Central States, which pretty much covers Minnesota and a few other uh, northern Midwest states, which was a job she took on last year. She originally thought that she would be able to handle both jobs, serving as the CEO of Planned Parenthood North Central States and serving in the legislature, but cited the demands of working in an evolving healthcare landscape as one of the reasons uh, why she decided to resign that seat. So, Patrick, I'm hoping you guys can provide a little more insight about how this call kind of came to be, because there is a lot to unpack here, as I know you guys have been reporting on some controversy she's had in the past with some uh, labor unions, which we can get into in just a few minutes. But what were some of the main reasons why she decided that now was the time to step down from the state legislature? Well, I think it's just uh, too demanding uh, to have both these jobs at the same time Uh, when she was named uh, the CEO, um, it certainly raised some eyebrows, uh, around Minnesota politics. Um, not just because there would appear to be a bit of a conflict of interest there when you've got, uh, someone running an organization, um, that is, uh, so, uh, tied to, uh, state law and public policy. Um, because there's a lot of legislators who have those kinds of conflicts, but, uh, the, the real issue was that Planned Parenthood is, a, is in this uh, in, incredibly important time for the organization uh, as they deal with the, the effects of the Dobbs decision. And um, there, there was just a feeling that that was going to be um, a very much a full-time job and it was going to be difficult to, uh, to wear both hats. Um, and then um, Richardson had a, a very productive legislative session uh, she shepherded the uh, paid family leave bill, um, which is certainly one of the most, uh, one of the biggest uh, achievements of this uh, DFL legislature, uh, although it won't go into effect until early 2026. Um, but she also uh, found uh, some controversy during the session um, with her and her other job. She, uh, there are some uh, staff at Planned Parenthood who um, are trying to unionize, and uh, she was accused of uh, some anti-union behavior as the CEO. She is in management there, and she actually lost the endorsement of the SEIU over that uh, conflict. So um, I think my sense is this, this was inevitable. It was just a question of uh, when it was going to happen. And I think by doing this now, uh, she gives um, the caucus uh, some time uh, to get a replacement there uh, with plenty of time for the next session. Well, as you mentioned, back in July, Max Nesterak was reporting on the controversy she had with this SEIU, 
SEIU union, rather, as they were attempting to unionize some of their workers with the Planned Parenthood North Central States region. And as you mentioned, Ruth Richardson was accused of engaging in some anti-union tactics at the time. But uh, you brought up an interesting point with this, too, how this possibly could have been inevitable. Was this dispute with the SEIU uh, probably another factor that could have led to her idea of resigning, knowing that perhaps she wouldn't have quite a strong support from labor unions? Uh, I'm curious about that aspect as well. I think she was a, uh, uh, she's in a relatively safe seat for Democrats. I, I think that her, um, her achievements in the legislature would have meant re-election if she wanted it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think there's any question that these, uh, this conflict between Planned Parenthood and the SEIU is, is not great for the, the DFL coalition. It was, uh, not great, uh, press during the session, um, and again, we were the ones who wrote those stories, uh, but I, I don't think you ever want, I don't think the caucus loved uh, that Ruth wound up, wound up on the opposite side of the SEIU, which is an important um, an important supporter of DFL. Uh, so I think that conflict certainly, I mean, if, if that conflict had not arisen, would she, would she remain? I, I still don't think so, but I, I, I think it was certainly not helpful. So what exactly is this going to mean politically? Obviously, uh, the DFL's majority is is reduced from six seats to five seats, but I'm curious about the timing of the special election as well, because I imagine uh, Governor Tim Walls and other DFLers probably want to get some sort of special election in before we get into the the next session coming up next year. Yeah, there will be a special election the governor will call. Um, I think it would make sense... uh, to, ta- to have it coincide with uh, municipal elections that are uh, coming up in November, um, but we don't know yet. Uh, he has not he has not called that special election, um, and uh, so I expect that in the next day or two. Um, but uh, it's generally a, a I think it's probably going to be a, uh, a relatively safe DFL seat. But I do recall the DFL losing a special election um, in the. Uh, in early part of 2016, I think, in Bloomington, which was uh, thought to be a, a relatively safe uh, DFL seat. Um, and, and so I think this gives Republicans an opportunity to, to get some momentum um, going into uh, the, the election year. It's, uh, it's not unwinnable um, because you're going to have a, a low turnout. Um, and so if you organize well, uh, you can win that thing. And, and it would really help, I think, their their momentum, uh, their fundraising, and, and their spirits going into the next election year. It's also a chance for them to uh, air their ideas, uh, to test different messages that might work uh, next year. Um, and if you win, if Republicans win that race, they come out of it with a strong message that the DFL legislature uh, of 2023 uh, overplayed their hand and um, and went too far, and suburban voters have repudiated them. And I, I think that would create um, a good storyline for them going into next year. And uh, you guys are going to be writing an article about this coming up tomorrow. In fact, I believe Max had a chance to actually speak to uh, 
Ruth Richardson, who will be assumed to be a former representative and the current CEO of Planned Parenthood North Central State. So, yeah, look forward to checking that out tomorrow at minnesotareformer.com. Any preview of what we can kind of expect in that article, or should people just uh, make sure they uh, take a take a read on that coming up tomorrow? Well, uh, Representative Richardson uh, released this news Friday at 6 o'clock uh, on a holiday weekend, which is always a sign that somebody doesn't want doesn't really want coverage of uh, of a news event. We call it a Friday news dump, and uh, but we're not going to um, let Representative Richardson get away with that. <laughs> so um, we want to give a full airing to her decision, give her a chance to talk about why she made this decision, um, but also talk about some of those dynamics that we talked about previously, uh, the the, uh, the conflict between Planned Parenthood and labor. Well, you can check that out over minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. As, yeah, you certainly hit the nail on the head there. Not only a Friday news dump at 6 p.m., but the Friday of Labor Day. I yeah, couldn't pick about a better time except for maybe releasing something on uh, Christmas or, or Thanksgiving during that holiday week. I uh, want to move on to a few other articles uh, before we wrap things up and want to talk about what's happening on the Leech Lake Reservation and one of their schools, Bagone Gashing School which uh, will have kids not drinking from the water fountains or having food prepared with well water at their school, at least for a while. And that's because the EPA back in December found a number of PFAS chemicals that were present in the water and that they recommended that the water system be shut down immediately. So this is interesting to me, Patrick, because as I was reading through your report on this, uh, this School is not really located near any manufacturing plants within several miles of this area, so it's kind of been a mystery as to, well, how they had this these high levels of PFAS chemicals in their drinking water without really any major manufacturing plants around, which kind of shows how scary these PFAS chemicals can be. Yeah, it's a perfect illustration of, of the danger of the chemicals um, and how they've really spread across the world. These are uh, man-made chemicals um, invented and manufactured by uh, 3M, uh, Minnesota's own uh, iconic company. Uh, they are uh, com- they comprise uh, very strong chemical bonds, which make them very useful in a lot of products um, because they resist heat and, um, and, and cold and uh, uh, grease and water and uh, just about everything else, and that makes them a uh, really uh, useful component in all kinds of products, but it also means that they don't break down, and they accumulate in the environment, and they accumulate in uh, water and ground and the human body, um, and, uh, and they've been, we've found them in just all over the planet, and in this case, it seems like maybe it's from a landfill and because there's so many consumer products that get thrown away that have uh, these chemicals that could be how uh, they wound up there. Um, but the, the immediate problem is, is getting clean water to these students and the staff there. Um, and, uh, but I, I think it's, it's an excellent illustration of the, long-term problem that we all face now because of the uh, these toxic chemicals that we allowed uh, 
and continue to allow the manufacture of, um, most notably by Minnesota's own 3M. Well, it certainly seems like, yeah, there needs to be a little more awareness around this because as the school even cited, they had the Bureau of Indian Education test the water back in November, and while they did find some of those uh, high yeah. levels, they, they're... The school said there really wasn't a lack of there was a lack of urgency on trying to get this cleaned up. It really wasn't until the EPA stepped in and saying, "Oh, you need to shut down this water treatment." So, I'm curious now what happens next in this situation because obviously you're going to have to get a new water treatment, and this is generally from one of the schools that does not get a ton of funding. So, I'm curious what does happen next with this. Could there be any action from the state legislature or who pays for this new water system that they're eventually going to need? Uh, walk us through what could be happening up next. Yeah, the, the jurisdiction is a little uh, confused here because you've got the Bureau of Indian Education, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the EPA, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, and then the Minnesota Health Department um, all have, uh, you know, can, can have uh, some links to this um, and some responsibility. Um, the school is controlled by the tribe, um, but it's owned by the BIE. So, um, you know, who's going to figure this out is a, is a good question. Ultimately, I would hope that the, the company that created the pollution uh, would would it, would pay for uh, cleaning it up. Um, but there's not a great history of that either. No. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not. Well, you can read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. Uh, one more thing to briefly talk about, and that has to do with school test scores, because that's something that people are paying attention to as we come out of the pandemic and evaluate how students did when having to learn remotely or at least doing hybrid remote learning. And student t- state test scores still have not rebounded to pre-pandemic levels. That's according to the latest data from the state of Minnesota. And there definitely is a geographic split with students generally in wealthier areas, especially the West Metro with better funded schools, tending to do better on these state assessments. Meanwhile, those in poorer areas, whether we're talking about the urban core of the Twin Cities or some of the more impoverished rural communities, tended to fare poorer. Now, anything jump out at you as you had a chance to take a look at some of these school test results? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly... Um what you would expect, um, the, the socioeconomic uh, areas well off, that are well off, uh, that they have the most resources, um, maybe the most involved parents, and, uh, and they scored best. But you also see some areas uh, where uh, rural areas, for instance, some rural areas, kind of isolated here and there, where you had really uh, excellent scores, and uh, Chris Ingram, who uh, who dove into this data, made the point that you know we ought to try to figure out what they're doing in these places and see if it can be replicated. Um, I, I think overall, uh, you saw a, a suite of uh, action of, of programs that the legislature passed and Governor Tim Walz pa- uh, signed this past spring that are an attempt to. Uh, to address the uh, these scores that have not recovered from the pandemic, and I mean, I do wonder what is the, the patience of uh, Minnesotans as um, as we continue to see these really wide disparities across the state uh, across the state, and at what point 
uh, do uh, DFL elected officials start to, um, are they held accountable for those gaps and uh, for the score still not recovering uh, two years after the pandemic? Yeah, most certainly. And at least Minnesota scores did generally perform better than others from around the country. But there is still, yeah, lots of work to do as uh, we are still uh, not rebounding from those pre-pandemic level test scores. Uh, you can read more about what Chris wrote over at minnesotareformer.com. As we have been speaking with Patrick Hulican, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, joining us every Tuesday chatting about some of the latest news and articles that they've been working on. Again, go to minnesotareformer.com. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.